has been a wonderful day today, a great privilege to be able to hear a young man, 22 years of age, come up here and deliver a lesson like a very seasoned pro, and to be able to uh, see 325 precious souls assemble this afternoon for Bible Bowl, to see all the enthusiasm of the young people and how well they are doing in their study of God's Word. A great day yesterday to be able to see people participate in the Autumn Street Fair and to sow the seed of the kingdom, try to be able to meet people, encourage people, and hopefully try to be able to influence people to become New Testament Christians. It's just been a good weekend, and Lord willing, we're going to try our best this week to also, in many other ways, to be able to influence a community for good. The first Sunday evening of each month, we have been taking time to answer biblical questions. Sometimes these questions are really serious in nature. Sometimes there are ones that are inquisitive. We need to be a seeking people. We ought to be like that eunuch in Acts chapter 8 that is saying, what does this mean? To whom does it apply? And How does it fit with my life? And asking questions is an excellent way to learn the truth. In fact, I like to be able, when talking with someone privately, one-on-one, to be able to explore various biblical questions that relate to important things. And each month I've tried to remind you, because I want you to continue to ask questions, just not so tough sometimes, But uh, they're questions that are textual in nature. What does this passage say? How do we interpret it? There's others that are topical, like, for instance, questions about baptism and questions about repentance and questions about how you and I should do things. And that leads into those that are practical. And I like those practical questions. And I have a couple of those who are reserved for future lessons. But I encourage you, if you have good questions... Take some time to write those down. We're going to explore two questions tonight. And the first one is one that says, What are cherubim and seraphim? The song, Holy, 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 mentions them in the second verse. Well, that's an interesting question. Let's talk about what the terms mean themselves. Cherub is the singular, cherubim is the plural. In fact, usually if you add that I am on the end of a Hebrew word, it makes it plural. This word is found 96 times in 70 verses in the Bible. The term itself means a supernatural winged creature. They have faces and they have wings. For instance, Exodus chapter 25, verse 20, And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another, and the faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. Obviously, this passage is talking about the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat that sat on top of it, and the two cherubim that were facing it. The word seraph, or the plural seraphim, is found in two verses, two times in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah. The term itself means a venomous snake or a burning snake, the kind that would be poisonous. 
It is also a six-winged creature. In Isaiah chapter 6, and I would love to spend time studying Isaiah 6, but uh, God sent a vision to Isaiah in at the death of Uzziah. You can read that in verse 1. But the vision, he said, saw above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now you understand where the phrase come from in the song, Holy, Holy, Holy. Verse 6 and 7, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. Okay, you say, well, I think I've got a little bit of idea what they are. For just a few minutes, let me explore this a little bit further with you. The majority of the occurrences in the Bible relate to, and all of them but one occurrence is in the Old Testament. The other one in the New Testament is from the book of Hebrews. But it refers to the tabernacle, to the temple, and to the mercy seat. For instance, if you go to Exodus 25 and the description of the building of the tabernacle, you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end, and you shall make the cherubim, the two ends of it, of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, and we've read that earlier. You go to chapter 25, verse 22, and there I will meet you and speak with you from above the mercy seat. I think it's significant that these cherubim, one on each side of that, in between them is where God would speak to the high priest. That's where he would speak with Moses. And he says, I will give you everything in the commandment to the children of Israel. Verse 1 of chapter 26. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen, blue, purple, and scarlet thread. With artistic designs of cherubim, you shall weave them. If you went into the tabernacle, particularly into the most holy place, not only would you see that golden Ark of the Covenant sitting in the middle, but you would see the curtains all the way around and cherubim would be woven in those garments. When you go to 1 Kings chapter 6, you then see a picture of the most holy place in the temple. He prepared the inner sanctuary inside the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold and overlaid the altar of cedar And Solomon overlaid inside the temple of pure gold. He stretched out gold chains in front of the inner sanctuary, overlaid it with gold. The whole temple was overlaid with gold until he finished all the temple. So you get the idea of the gold that's in there. But he goes on in verse 24 and says, And the wing of one cherub was five cubits. The wing of the other cherub was five cubits. Ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. And you say, oh, wow, I'm... I'm seeing now that cherubim were not only a part of 
this Ark of the Covenant, but now they're in the tabernacle and they're in the temple and they're overlaid with gold. If you continue to study through the Old Testament, you come to the book of Ezekiel. And when you get to the book of Ezekiel, he opens his vision that God has allowed him to see with the idea that he is by the river Kibar. He says, I saw the heavens open and I saw the visions of God. And what did God show him? He showed him living creatures. He said, verse 5, and it came within the likeness of four living creatures. This was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces. Each one had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished brass. As for the likeness of their face, each one had the face of a man and each one had the face of a lion on the right side and each one had the face of an ox on the left side and each of the four had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces. And their wings stretched upward. Two wings of each one touched another and two covered their bodies. Now, if you look at verse 28, he says, Like the appearance of a rainbow that is in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. I thought that's significant. When you see these cherubim, they are important because they reflect God's glory. And he said, so when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. To me, it's significant that between the cherubim that was on the top of the mercy seat, that's where God spoke. And now in the vision of Ezekiel, cherubim is where God is speaking. Now, to know that these are cherubim, verse 20 of chapter 10, the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Kibar, and I knew that they were cherubim. Now one other passage before we leave this to go a little bit further you go to chapter 41, verses 18 through 20, and he gives a picture again of the temple that Ezekiel was envisioning as a part of his vision, and they were there. I will tell you that if you read your Bible carefully, Genesis 3, verse 24, God placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword to be turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You go a little bit further, you will find out that David pictured it as a flying animal upon which God rode. 2 Samuel twenty two eleven. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. You say, I never realized there was all that in the Bible about those cherubim. These are supernatural creatures that are in the presence of God. Now, you say, well, I wish I could see one of them. There are several carvings that are ancient. For instance, don't think of cherubims as little pudgy babies. That's not the picture of them in the Bible. Here's one from the Bible Lands Museum, and it dates to the 8th or 9th century B.C. And if you will notice, it has the face similar to the face of a human But if you'll notice the body, the body looks more like a a horse 
And if you'll notice the hooves, the hooves look more like those represented. Or you can find this one in the British Museum. Uh, it's Phoenician, that is, from those uh, port cities of Tyre and Sidon. It also dates to the 9th to the 8th century B.C. It found at the fort of Shalmaneser in Nimrud, and that's in northern Iraq. Again, you'll notice the face, you'll notice the wings, and these are only just two that I have to show you, but there's many of them, and these are the idea of what one might think of when you think of a cherubim. Now let's move to the second question. Sometimes I wish you wouldn't ask the tough questions. I know that God does not lie, but what about the passages where he is said to deceive? And then there are three passages that were cited. 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 20 through 23. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. And Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 25. Well, let's begin to explore them. The commonality between these passages is that of God, and I want to italicize the word, I want to especially emphasize it, God allowing deception. But each of these cases, you have to look at the context to see how it resolves itself. So let's go to 1 Kings chapter 22. Let's look at verses 20 through 23. And the Lord said... Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth-Gilead? So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. Then the Spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, In what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. Tough verse, or verses, tough passage to look at. But the context is the key. I don't have time to read and notice each detail of this, so let me try to summarize this as I put it on the screen. In verses 1 through 8, there is a confederacy that takes place between the king of the northern kingdom, Ahab, and the king of the southern kingdom, Judah, by the name of Jehoshaphat. And they're going to go up and try to reclaim Ramoth-Gilead, now the question comes up is there's a war between Syria and Israel and there's going to be this confederacy. And it says that Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel and the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead is ours? But we hesitate to take it out of the king of Syria. So he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight at Ramoth Gilead? And he says, Sure, I'm as you are, and your people are my people, and your, my horses is your horses. Now, Jehoshaphat was a man who was of God. And so, verse 5, Jehoshaphat says to the king of Israel, Please inquire for the word of the Lord today. Now, listen carefully as you get to verse 6. 
the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, now pause before you read the rest of it. This is Ahab. This is the same king that Elijah had to confront on Mount Carmel now. You remember the prophets of Baal? And so he says, shall I go and fight against Ramoth Gilead to fight, or shall I refrain? And they said, go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. And Jehoshaphat said, now listen carefully, is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? He makes a distinction between the prophets of Ahab and a prophet of the Lord Verse 8, so the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is still one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say such things. Now, um, as you begin to follow along here, and you go to verse 9, the kings of Israel called an officer and said, Bring Micaiah, the son of Imlah, quickly. And the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, having put on the robe, sat each on his throne. So you can see the picture of what's happening here. And uh, it says, verse 11, Now Zedekiah, the son of Kenaiah, the maid of horns of iron for himself, he said, Thus says Lord God, with these you shall gore the Syrians till they are destroyed. And all the prophets said so, saying, Go up. For the Lord will deliver it into the king's hand. Now the messenger had called Micaiah. Micaiah comes in. Verse 14, he says, Whatever the Lord tells me to speak, I'm going to speak. Verse 15, Micaiah, shall we go up to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall we refrain? He says, Go up and prosper for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. Now listen to the way he responds to Micaiah. So the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? He didn't believe him. Because he had prophesied evil against him all these times, and Ahab wasn't believing. So he said, Then he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let them return in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you to prophesy? good concerning me, but evil. Now, Micaiah revealed a plan of deception. He told him in advance that he was going to be deceived. If someone tells you beforehand that they are going to try to deceive you and the way they're going to deceive you, and you say, well, it's not a deceit then. I know what I'm doing. For instance, if I'm teaching a Bible class and I say to you, I'm going to play the devil's advocate and then I tell you something that's false, you know that when I tell you I'm playing the devil's advocate, I'm telling you something that's false. Micaiah revealed that he was presenting before Ahab a message that he wanted to hear but that it was not going to turn out the way he wanted it to turn out. When you think of it that way, God is basically saying, you want your lying prophets to lie to you? I'm going to let them lie to you. I'm going to permit them to lie to you. 
And I'm going to tell you that they are lying to you. Now let me take with that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I want to pick up with verse 9 because the context that revolves around verse 11. And in talking about the man of sin, he says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. With all powers, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. That they all might be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You see, the man of sin here is pictured as a great deceiver. And what it says in verse 10 and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Why are they perishing? Very plainly stated, he said they did not receive a love of the truth. There are people in this world who choose to believe a lie because they don't love the truth. We see that in our world today. People don't want to accept the truth that they have to be a member of the Lord's church in order to go to heaven. People don't accept the truth that they have to live moral lives to be acceptable to God. And so it says, for this reason, because they don't love the truth, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Verse 12 is the explanation that they all might be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Are there people who believe lies today? Absolutely there are. Could they believe the truth? Surely they could believe the truth. But they choose because they enjoy the pleasure of unrighteousness to believe a lie, and God allows them to do so. Now let's look at the third. Well, I'm just going to review this. They did not love the truth. They took pleasure in unrighteousness. When it says that God did something, sometimes he merely allowed it. Psalms 81 verse 12, So I gave them power over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. Proverbs 5 22, His own iniquities entrap the wicked, and he is caught in the cords of his sin. And in Isaiah 66, 3 and 4, he talks about, they chose that in which I do not delight. God allows people to choose what he wants to do. If you want to choose to bow down and serve an idol, God will allow you to do so. Now the third passage found in Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 25. The New King James reads, Therefore I also gave them up to statutes that were not good, and judgments by which they could not live. The original King James says, Wherefore I gave them also statutes that were not good, and judgments whereby they should not live. Do you mean God gives bad statutes? God gives rules that a person cannot live by? Well, the context here is these people are in rebellion to God. They are shaking their fist in God's face and saying, we don't want to do what you tell us to do. 
Just explore with me for just a few minutes the 14 verses that precede this. Therefore I made them go out of Egypt, brought them into the wilderness, and I gave them statutes and showed them judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. You, you remember that quotation in the New Testament? A righteous man lives by faith. He said, I gave them good statutes. I gave them good ordinances. What did they do? He said, they rebelled against me, verse 13. They despised my judgments. They defiled my Sabbaths. Look at verse 14. I acted for my name's sake, that I should not be profaned before the Gentiles in whose sight I had brought them out. He said in verse 17, I spared them and did not bring them to an end in the wilderness. Verse 19, I'm the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes. Keep my judgments. Do them. Hallow my Sabbaths. Verse 21, Notwithstanding, the children of Israel rebelled against me and did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to observe my judgments, which if a man does, he will live by them. Do you see twice he's already said, if you'll do what's right, if you'll do these commandments, these statutes that I have given you, you'll be able to live by them. Then verse 23, I raised my hand and an oath to those who are in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the Gentiles to disperse them throughout the countries because they had not executed my judgments, because they had despised my statutes, profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were fixed on their father's idols. The key phrase, he showed them my judgments, which if a man does them, he shall live by them. God allowed them to pursue statutes that were not good. Let me ask you a question. What if today we decide on our own that we're going to worship God in all kinds of ways? Maybe we're going to come up here and we're going to bow down before some idol. Will God allow us to make statutes which are not good and bow down to them? Absolutely He will. But He's not pleased with them. He will allow man to do that. In fact, if you go to Acts chapter 14, verse 16, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Romans 1 and verse 28, as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, he gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. God allows his people to go the wrong direction and believe wrong things. So those three passages which were suggested do not teach that God divinely deceives us. God does not give us bad laws. In fact, the truth is, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation nor shadow cast of turning. You see, what you have here is people who choose to be deceived. Now, some of the questions are interesting. Some of them are even perhaps even entertaining. But man's quest ought to be for saving truth. We ought to be asking not only the questions that interest us, not only the questions which pick our interest, but we still need to be asking those same questions that are like that one found in Acts 9 and verse 6. So he trembling and astonished said, 
Lord, what do you want me to do? The Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. This evening, I want you to ask yourself the question, Am I doing what God wants me to do? What would you have me to do, Lord? He wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He wants you to repent of your sins, to to turn from the wicked way and do the right things. He wants you to own Him, to confess Him before men. Matthew 10, 32 and 33 says, If we don't, He will not confess us before the Father. And then to be baptized. That means to be immersed in water for the remission of our sins. Acts 2 verse 38. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Tonight, if you need to become a Christian, I know of no greater joy than to see a new brother, new sister in Christ tonight. If you are a child of God who needs some prayers because... Sin has crept into your life. We'll be glad to pray with you tonight. If you need to respond, please come. While together we stand and sing.